Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In episode nine, we'll be interviewing Seema Anand, storyteller, mythologist, and author of The Arts of Seduction. Then, I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth by John C. Maxwell. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for seduction. But first, let's talk about my own philosophy on seduction. To seduce or to be seduced, what's better? I'm not sure what I actually prefer. I've absolutely loved being the seductress at some times in my life, especially when I was younger. I think when I was a teenager, I felt so ugly. I was like not considered one of the pretty girls at school. Then when I got to 18, I started to kind of get all this male attention everywhere. And I thought it was really superficial because it was just kind of based on my blossoming because I did feel attractive at that at that age. And I thought, well, I'm going to become unattractive again as I age. So that's not very authentic to just focus on what someone looks like. I'm still the same weirdo inside, the same one that everyone thought was awful and ugly a few years earlier. In the dictionary, I found the word or the definition of seduction, seduce, to entice someone into sexual activity. I think sometimes the word seduction or yeah, seduction or to seduce can have a kind of negative connotation. In some contexts, it could mean manipulation. But of course, if both parties are open to seduction, then it can be absolutely incredibly thrilling to kind of kind of draw it out as long as possible before actually engaging in any type of sexual activity. And that can be a massive, massive turn on. When I think about my my best seductions, they lasted for months and months, <laughs> almost a year in some cases. And I wasn't using my physique. I was using my brain and my humor and my weird parts of me that I think are my most beautiful parts. For example, I can think of a time when I actually seduced someone who was incredibly forbidden. And I think that's why I wanted to seduce him. I wanted to prove something to myself. It was absolutely, totally in my ego. I wanted to prove to myself that I was capable of attracting a man who was in a position of power in my life. Now that I'm older and wiser, I do think it was actually a lot more, it was easier than what I um, I could have imagined. But um, I can't really go into that too much because it was someone who was very, very, very forbidden. And then um, a few years later, I remember seducing a guy that I knew he liked me. He was always trying it on with me, but I just wasn't really, I don't know what it was about him, but... I just, um, I was, I had a lot of resistance about this person, but I remember if, um, I invited him to my place actually for dinner one night and I hadn't had sex for a long time. And I was thinking, yeah, tonight is going to be his lucky night. And instead of doing all the classic things about, you know, wearing perfume or getting nice makeup on and doing my hair and dressing nicely, which might be the more obvious ways to seduce someone. I made sure I had no makeup on while I was clean. I was showered and shaved and smooth and all of that. Uh, I was waxed and ready to climax. But over that, over my naked, smooth body, I was wearing, I was wearing a hoodie and jogging bottoms and some old slippers and a, 
fresh face of no makeup. So when I answered the door to him, he he could not imagine the you know how the night would end. So we we had dinner, we talked because first and foremost we were friends, so it was kind of normal for us to hang out together, even though I I knew he liked me. And anyway, we started talking about female orgasm because we actually worked together in the media. So it was very kind of normal for us to end up speaking about sex on some level and for it to be very matter of fact. And I can't remember really what happened, but it ended up the night I was, I was actually showing him one of my favorite sex toys at the time. And he was asking me how it made me feel and all that. And I ended up like using it in front of him. <laughs> and what first, what started out as something being very matter of fact, ended up being sex on the sofa. I'm getting a bit of a thrill just remembering it right now. And anyway, when he left, I was just feeling kind of satisfied that my my plan had worked. And then a couple of months later, I actually wrote about it I can't remember what the article was called. It was sort of called something like "Unexpected Seduction" or something like that. I wrote an article in a newspaper in a, in a magazine, and it was actually printed. And then when it was all printed, I took a photo of the article and sent it to him. And then he wrote back, wow, you planned it all along. So this whole incident was something that was kind of bubbling up for months and months. And I have a few more examples of things like that in my life. But those are the things that really thrill me and get me going in terms of seduction. It's not so much about... um, what what someone's wearing or or, or anything like that. Although those although other, those other things can absolutely seduce me. Someone's smell, especially pheromones. I'm I'm really into pheromones. I remember a few years ago, or one of my last um, important boyfriends. I used to always request his old t-shirts, his old sweaty t-shirts, so I could sleep in them. I just loved having his smell near me. I was really, really into it. And then strangely, a few years later, we we were kind of still friends and I kind of um, um, hugged him and I was just thinking, and then I got a kind of waft, uh, what do you say, a waft of his smell. And I just thought, oh, I don't like that. And it's kind of strange how your perception can change over time. You think someone smells nice when they're sweaty and then when you're not into them, it's like, oh God, that's awful. Yes. So seduction, seduction is definitely something that is seductive. And also I remember times that I have been seduced myself and and um, I kind of have enjoyed that kind of, not lack of control, but almost the surprise of um, ending up in a situation that you didn't anticipate. It's very, very seductive. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Seema Anand, storyteller, mythologist, and author of The Arts of Seduction. Seema, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you so much for taking part in this interview today. I'm very happy to have you here. You are a mythologist, and that is changing the world one story at a time. What inspired you to be so open with your audience and share messages through storytelling? And do you have a favorite story that inspired you to start this? Well, uh, Venus, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, Yes, I do think that stories are just about the most powerful tool of influence in the universe. You know, our identities are defined by the stories that we tell. So if there are stories of how a man comes home and he's drunk and he beats up his wife, but she's such a good woman, she's so good, she never says anything to him, she always keeps quiet about it, then you've already established what the identity of a good woman is supposed to be. So um, over time, you realize that we all act according to the stories that we tell or the stories that we've chosen to silence. That's what really impacts our lives. And so, uh, yeah, I decided that it was these stories that had to be explored because if you're going to make change, then it is only when you change the stories that that change will happen. That's what led me to stories to begin with. And um, as I said, as I started to explore this idea of identity through stories, I realized that we never ever tell stories of a woman's right to her own body, her own sexuality. That's always someone else's property. And so particularly being of Indian origin, having grown up, having been born in India, grown up in India, I realized that coming from a society that actually wrote the Kama Sutra, what are the 
stories that we had silenced because surely there was another world out there that we seemed to have bypassed and missed. And that's what took me to this idea of exploring the stories of sensuality, exploring the stories of a woman's right to her own pleasure, because the stories are there, they've just been silenced. And um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. I have a copy of the Kama Sutra in Spanish here that someone gave me a few years ago. So you are a Kama Sutra expert. I think when people think of Kama Sutra, they think of lots of sex positions. It's not just that, is it? What is the Kama Sutra? So yes, you're absolutely right. People talk of the Kama Sutra and I'm sure, I don't know what your version is like, but I have a feeling that it's mostly based on um, the arts of pleasure and very little else. I don't know if it has. It has a lot of text in it as well. It's just, okay. So the Kama Sutra was originally written sometime in 300 and something AD as a book to explain to the the urbane man, to um, to the wealthy man, how to live the perfect lifestyle. So it's a lifestyle book. And I always say to people, and they're always surprised when I say this, that the book was written for men. It was not written for women because going back to that time, 300 and something AD, women were not taught how to read or write. So the book was written for men. And the book is written in seven sections. So the first section talks about how a man should find the perfect location for his house, how he should build it, how many bedrooms there should be, how many minor birds and parrots he should keep in his garden, and how many hours he should spend talking to them, um, how many hours should be spent getting himself massaged, and you know what should be his idea of ornamentation. The second section is on the arts of pleasure, The third section is on how to go look for the perfect wife. The fourth section is how to marry the perfect wife. The fifth section is how to seduce another man's wife. I mean, it's like, yeah, there's also a section on that. And it's a very politically motivated thing because there might be a reason to seduce somebody else's wife because a husband might be of use to you or um, he might be able to uh, give you a position of power or something. So there's, you know, there's quite a lot to the text. The uh, the sixth section is about um, the courtesans because courtesanery back then was a state regulated profession, and so there's lots of rules around that, and um, you know how much they're allowed to charge, what all they can do, etc. And the seventh section, which I think was added much later, is a bit of a pointless section. It's all about magic potions and lotions, and quite honestly, I, I don't think that there's anything of any worth in there. Uh, and I think it was put in as a sort of, um, oh, look, we've added this section of magic potions and lotions, and it suddenly makes it acceptable. Um, I don't know why that was put in there. But the section that people pick up always, the little bit, which is the positions, which is actually a teensy little part of the section on the arts of pleasure. It's not even the entire thing. And I think that's because they picked that up because it's the only word that they understood. The rest of the Kama Sutra, it's a treatise. It's written as are all treaties in um, metaphors. It's a grammarian's book. And most of those metaphors have never been translated. People don't understand what they meant. So they went for the positions. And of course, over time, it just became the easiest thing to focus on. I must admit that I always focus, I am particularly interested in the second section, which is the arts of pleasure. The reason that I'm interested in that is because this is the only place where I think they were trying to change the narrative of women. Because that section is totally devoted to how a man must understand um, a woman's pleasure, how he must treat a woman, how he must understand how to bring her to complete pleasure. And I have a feeling, I mean, when you read the Kama Sutra, if anybody out there decides to read the Kama Sutra, they will see for themselves that you don't actually talk about the act of sex at any point. So you would talk about positions, Mm -hmm. but we're not actually talking about the act of sex. And there was a reason why that um, the idea of positions was put in. Would you like to know why they are? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe maybe people didn't read. Um, if people couldn't read back then, maybe it was, the mo- it was a visual part that any anyone could understand. Would that be a reason? No, there weren't actually paintings in the original one. It was okay. written as a text. And as I said, it's, it's funny because um, this bit was actually written to change the narrative of women, even though we'd like to believe that in the time that comes, Sutra, there's so much 
importance being given to the pleasure of women, that maybe it was a different society altogether. There was always a parallel strand of patriarchy that was trying to put the women down. So this is being written really to make people understand that there's a whole different narrative or to, to get people to change the way that they think of women. And it's interesting because in the introduction, it actually says that, um, you, you know, I mean, the book is about karma. It's about love or the aspects of love in all its many different ways. A lot of people think that karma means lust. It doesn't. So what does karma sutra mean then? Sutra means the thread. So literally, this is uh, talking about the, so if you translate it directly, it's about the thread of love or the story of love. Oh. A sutra is literally a, a story or a narrative that follows a thread. So the Kama Sutra literally means when you live your life, um, they say that you, you, there are three basic principles to life. So you live according to dharma, which is your social responsibilities, artha, which is your financial responsibilities, you know, build up a business, earn your money, and karma, which is your emotional relationships. So karma is to do with love in all its aspects. It's not just um, lust or physical pleasure. Yeah, it's not. No, because somebody recently said to me, oh, it means lust. And I was like, no, it doesn't just mean physical pleasure. It means pretty much everything. It's just what we've come to understand what it means. And um, it's uh, uh, I was going to say it's burst about the positions because I get a bit carried away. It's a very exciting (laughs) subject as far as I'm concerned. But to just explain, it says that if you are going to make love, it should always be entirely mutually pleasurable. Otherwise, there's no point to sex. There's no point to making love if it is not completely mutually pleasurable. And the very first thing towards um, making it mutually pleasurable is if the sexual organs of both partners are in sync, if they're the same kind of sites. So if the woman is too big and the man is too small, she's not going to feel any of the excitement. He's not going to feel the excitement. If she's too small, he's too big. There's just going to be pain and discomfort. So the first thing is that the organs have to be the same size, but nobody ever in history was like, I'd love to get together with you, but what is the size of your uh, you know, uh, genitalia? It's not possible. So the positions were created to help people synchronize their sizes. Oh, wow. So if the woman was very big and the man was really small, it was about what kind of positions would make her a little bit smaller so she could lie on her side, if she pulled her knees up a little bit. So those are the positions that she would follow. If the man was very short, then there were certain positions that help deeper penetration. If the woman's very small and he's too big, again, there are different positions for that. And that's why the positions were actually created. They were not created for some kind of gymnastic display. That's fascinating because I've always said, um, because people always ask me if size is is important. I've always said that genital compatibility is more important. I think people get blamed the men all the time when in fact, actual fact is about both. And I think, um, is there any kind of recommendations for pelvic floor training in the Kama Sutra exercises? I think that there's generally a lot of recommendation for exercise and because they say that that's really great for you. But, you know, one of the things that they talk about, because you do get to a point where people have different abilities, different capacities, not everybody can sort of do pelvic floor exercises. And it's just, it's not just the woman's responsibility. As I said, this book was actually putting a lot of the responsibility on the man to make sure that he was the one pleasuring the woman not the other way around for most of it. And again, like I said, that's a big myth that we have in society, that it's, um, it's the woman's responsibility, not so according to the Kama Sutra. And one of the things that it does recommend for any of your readers who are out there and thinking, well, how can they actually change things around to make um, their genital compas- compatibility easier? It says that every bedroom should have at least eight cushions of different sizes and shapes Mm -hmm. that should be put under different parts of your body. Because each time you put one under your body in a different place and a different shape, um, it changes the angle of penetration. And they say that a woman's vagina has something like 24 pleasure spots. So not just the one G spot, there's about 24 pleasure spots. It's... um, 
every spot has its own sensation. So it's not a generic kind of you hit that spot and you're going to be like, oh, I'm just so um, passionately aroused because it's also exciting. One spot might make you feel really chilled out. Another spot might make you feel very aroused. Another one might make you feel very satisfied. Another one might make you feel really mellow. You know, it's just each one is different. And that's what passion, arousal, pleasure, intimacy should be about. And hence, as I said, the eight cushions are, um, it's an easy way of going about it. But as I was saying, what's really interesting is that I think personally, it was written to change the narrative of women, because when you read the introduction of the Kama Sutra, it actually has this, um, and I, I, you know, the Kama Sutra has been translated by a lot of people. We've lost a lot of it. I found this in a commentary written in the 11th century by a Buddhist monk. And it says over there that men are told that if they can take the time and effort to bring a woman completely to pleasure, their wife, their partner, whoever it is, that their life will become better. So if you can partner, if you can pleasure your wife fully, your business will do better. Mm. Because because they've got to make the change aspirational. Your business will do better because she won't just go out and waste your money. She won't go and splurge on unnecessary things. She won't go off and have affairs. She will look after your household very, very carefully because she feels so, well, satisfied in herself. And also the sacral chakra is like associated with, with sexuality and money. So I guess that makes Absolutely. Sense. So, you know, that is the whole point. of. So they were trying to make it really aspirational for men. And it's so sad because those are the things that have been lost in our translations, in our taking the text forward. It even says that if you can be a super good lover and really pleasure your partner, you can be a better warrior. Mm. Because your body can only really do so much, right? It's a restrictive amount that you can do with your physical body. But with those restrictions, if every day when you're together or every time you're together, you can bring an element of surprise, something new somehow that will excite her. You can take that same skill to the battlefield where you can approach your enemy with something different that will take them by surprise and give it the edge. And there were even battle positions named after lovemaking positions. Wow. So what did women do for contraception back then? Because I think I'm so glad I'm, I was born in this era because I think I'm so happy that, you know, contraception is quite easy to come by. So I think the fear of getting pregnant must be a massive obstacle in the way of for female pleasure in the past. I think that it always would have been. Um, I'm very sure. So the Kamsutra does talk about some form of contraception. It doesn't talk about it a lot. Um, as I said, this was more as in, in information for men and teaching them how to pleasure the woman as opposed to a lifestyle text for women to follow. So there would have been certain amounts of contraception. The stuff that they noted down came in the chapter that I said was around lotions and potions. And it did not uh, inspire me with any level of um, confidence. So I would actually tell you what they said about uh, you. But there were things like, you know, um, a certain amount of oil. If you put a, if you put oil in your vagina, you know, if you lubricate your vagina with a greasier sub substance, which we today say that is not such a good thing to do. But uh, they say that that will actually stop the flow of sperm. Then there were certain types of um, things were used, you know, um, as sort of preventatives. Yeah, but like I said, I, I, it's not something that um, I'm going to suggest from the Kama Sutra because I, I, I find that whenever I talk about something, even if I say truly don't use it, please, because I don't think it's so great, oh, yeah. people will still pick it up and go yeah, with it. Yes, so. I understand. So um, currently in, in Indian culture, do you think the younger generation has had a disconnect from this history of pleasure? Totally and entirely. I think that it's not just the younger generation. This has been happening for several generations because as society changed, as it developed, ideas change anyway. And India's been um, subject to invasions as long, as far back as I can remember. So as other cultures come in, they start to change the ideology. They start to change the roles. And so as far as we can tell, 
the the ideals of the Kama Sutra or the teachings of the Kama Sutra seem to have been quite prevalent up until the sixth, seventh century. And then after that, things seem to go back into change. Now, interestingly, the the Kama Sutra inspired around 2000 years of literature. So, I mean, we have a lot of um, literature, a lot of love epics based on the metaphors of the Kama Sutra, all about pleasure and how, so, okay, things like the Kama Sutra talks about the 64 skills. Most people think that the 64 skills are about how to bring a, become a super good lover that you do this and it's not. The 64 skills are really diverse. So they go everything, they include everything from singing and dancing to um, botany to gemology to understanding how to um, uh, make things out of metal, you know, learn woodwork and uh, quail fighting, all of this. And these things, you know, word riddles, et cetera, brain games. All of this was meant to make you a more diverse personality so that you become a more desirable lover, somebody who becomes more exciting to be with because you can talk about so many different things. You have so many different interests. It wasn't nothing in this world except experience and practice and a serious amount of conscious thought will make you a better lover. Mm. You can become a more desirable lover. But uh, popping a pill won't make you a better lover. Viagra will give you a longer erection. It won't make you better at what you do. There's a huge difference. And I think people forget that. So um, we have lost a lot of these teachings along the way. But as I said, the, the, the literature has followed that strand. So I was saying to you earlier about the metaphors, for instance. You know, did you know that in ancient times, every single position was taught to the women, particularly through pieces of jewelry. Oh, wow. So you learned how to make love. Yeah, I know. Isn't that very exciting? So one of the things I always say as an example is um, in ancient times, a woman in any culture, in any ancient culture, you weren't supposed to be on top during lovemaking because that was the position of power. So if you know the story of Lilith, uh, she tells Adam that she has the right to be on top, they're made from the same mud. And she's thrown out of paradise for saying that. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, it was considered such a sinful thing to do. The Kama Sutra says you can be on top. But um, the idea of being on top was that you only move your hips for ultimate pleasure. You don't move the upper part of your body. And I also personally think that if you've tried being on top ever, that... If you don't do it right, you do hurt your back. So they say that you only move your hips. And to learn how to do this, women would wear these jingling girdles across their upper waist with lots and lots of little tiny bells on them and make sure that the bells didn't make a sound. Oh, wow. That's quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, so there was this whole thing of, you know, um, in our literature, we never say that, oh, and then, you know, she's with her lover and she climbs up on top and she... You just say she put on her jingling girdle mm. and you knew that she had taken her position on top or he is going to send her a jingling girdle made of silver or gold. And you know that this is a relationship of very deep, um, mutual, pleasurable respect and int intimacy. So, you know, each position had its own piece of jewelry. And I just think that even as a woman, even as a woman today, you think, you know, this whole idea when we go to bed with our partner, when you make love, you know, you wash off your makeup, you get into your old nighty, you turn off the lights. Like, back then they said that this was really special. You got dressed for it. Mm -hmm. So there were the different ornamentations, the different type of perfuming, because you said this was special. It was beautiful. It was something that you wanted to, make sure would be just fabulous between you so you treated it differently i guess it was a lot less a long time and um i've been reading your book the arts of seduction over the last week it's very interesting i love reading as you can see i don't have a tv here it's just books <laughs> and um I, I found it really interesting what i really loved about the opening of the book it talks about sex being an experience 
the difference between a fuck and, ex- and an experience. I really feel like that because I think um, in modern times with this porn or Tinder culture, it's kind of like the McDonald's of sex. It's like fast food. It's taking away the real joy or the beauty of intimacy, which is the most beautiful part of having sex in, in general, isn't it? When, it? when it's just more than the physical, it's just like a whole experience you don't need to go out because you have so much fun with your partner you know it's it's really really beautiful and some of the things that um surprised me and interested me in this book um you start off with the art of perfuming I thought found that really interesting because um I haven't worn deodorant for five years now so I was thinking oh, maybe I'm not doing the right thing but I think we live in a culture where I, I like the way you talked about natural pheromones as well how you know how perfumes and oils can blend with your own smell because so I think a lot of perfumes these days and deodorants there's kind of an obsession with masking our natural smell and in any supermarket we can find products like intimate wash for the vulva but there's no penis cleaner <laughs> so <laughs> why is that so I think how can we get a balance between celebration of pheromones and and perfume so I actually wrote the book literally um, to translate the metaphors, because as I said, that, you know, people read the Kama Sutra, they don't really know what is the, the nuances that it's talking about. And there are a lot of nuances. And I think that particularly, so it says um, that a, a sexual relationship or an intimate relationship where you do have sex together, that it will be longer lasting and more pleasurable if the woman does feel the same amount of pleasure, because a lot of times it is the woman that gets so bored with the monotony, becomes more like a chore, you bring it to an end, you're like, okay, I've had it. And, you know, everything kind of goes belly up because both partners don't feel the same excitement. And I'm always trying to say to men that if um, you can find it in yourself to take the time to pleasure her really, really fully, if she can come to that kind of pleasure, your own pleasure will go up tenfold because it's just how it works it's just the way that it works but when it comes to perfume I'm always fascinated by so yes it is so much easier I guess um you know you go to a supermarket you pick up xyz perfume you spray it on the old style of perfuming the natural perfumes it just took that much longer but I just think it was so sexy because like you said it gave you the chance to create your own individual smell. So it wasn't about masking your smell. It was about enhancing it because we all have our own perspiration. We all have our own smell. And each perfume was left on there for long enough to mix with your own smells. So you started perfuming yourself in the morning and by the evening, it had actually mingled with your smells and you... um, then had your own very distinct individual flavor. And I think that's something very exciting, literally, about doing that, because it's just, I mean, if one, just rubbing perfume on yourself or rubbing perfume oil on yourself makes you feel amazing. It's just that contact with the skin. But it wasn't, again, like I said, it wasn't just for the women. It was equally for the men. So back then, there is this whole schedule of how long men were supposed to spend on their um, toiletries, mm-hmm. on their toilet, on their abu- uh, ab- ablutions, we get the word wrong, um, on their ablutions. So, you know, they were supposed to be massaged with different perfumed oils. They were supposed to also make sure, um, for instance, that you know, India is a hot country. The weather is very different. And when you go out in the sun, you're likely to perspire. So when you lean forward to talk to somebody that, you know, how did you do that? So men actually wore garlands of different kinds of scented flowers around the neck and so on. So, and yes, it also tells them how often they're supposed to um, get rid of their pubic hair, how often they're supposed to clean certain things. So yeah, in, in, in ancient times, we had the cleaners for we had the penis cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how there's all this pressure on women for those products, but there's nothing for men. It's it's like a very really unfair because I think it I think that really has a negative impact on female sexuality today. For example, there's many men who really enjoy um cunnilingus, but women who are like too, you know, uptight to actually just let go, you know, and, and enjoy it, that are thinking about yeah. what it looks like or what it smells like, what it tastes like. Whereas there are many 
enthusiastic kind of linguists out there. And I do believe that that is part of the problem, all, all these kind of this obsession with intimate cleaner and, and how available it is, you know, it's, it's, it's just awful. I mean, but also it's, you know, so I recently did a reel and about saying to women that the smell of their vagina, the, the smell of a natural, healthy vagina, the natural smell of a healthy vagina is the most exciting thing in the world. Absolutely. And then I said about mm-hmm. how perfume makers have been trying to put that smell into perfumes as a base. And, you know, yeah. and it was just a case of just to say, let's normalize it. Ladies, you're okay. There was nothing more intended. You should see the kind of trolling I have had from men saying, how dare you say this? You are so disgusting. What do you mean? It's a natural. And, oh my God, it's just been unbelievable. <laughs> and then a bunch of men saying, what about my penis? Hey, you know, go find somebody to talk about a penis. Yes, there are scents based around the penis. Go find them. I'm not particularly interested in telling you about them. Well, I actually saw an advert a few years ago that was trying to make a perfume out of that smell. And the advertisement was really funny. It was like these guys in the gym sniffing the saddles that the women had just used. It was, it was really funny. Yeah, that came from that lady. God, I can't remember her name. But, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the perfume. Is it called... Um, I can't remember, sorry. But, um, you know, where she would literally take the panties off the models when they came off the catchwalk and smell them. Uh-huh. I think it was devised a smell for, well, for many different women. I wrote about it in an article years ago called Sense of a Woman in, in for, for El Pais newspaper, maybe about eight years ago or something. Okay. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting. It was actually found, you know, they, they took lots of examples and then made an actual perfume that was supposed to be... And of course, now you have uh, Erica Badu with her um, vagina incense, and um, you've got Gwyneth Paltrow's um, candle. This smells <laughs> like my vagina, and so, and you know what? I, it's like I put all these things in the in the caption of the reel, and I still had people saying, "That's such nonsense." Who says? Which are these perfumes? Damn it! Read. <laughs> but there are plenty there are lots of fans of that anyway because i mean one, one thing that really turns me on is when a guy is like really into that smell and like is it's like yeah. going and shamelessly like going <laughs> yeah. like we are animals you know so it's just like wow i find it very very interesting it is a very exciting smell <laughs> so let's talk about dildos that was very interesting you said that people made their own dildos was that do you think that was out of to make objects of for personal preference or was it because it's a personal object you don't you don't want other people to see it no i believe um and like i said you know so much of this has been lost so we're we're kind of trying to go back and research um from other literature that followed on from the kam sutra to get explanations but um so making dildos for the woman was not an unusual thing in ancient china it was a bridal gift so when a girl got married, she was given a replica of her husband's penis <laughs> wow. uh, in a beautifully decorated lacquer box. And often they would put his photo at the bottom or his signature at the bottom so that if he was away for a long period of time on work, um, she didn't have to deprive herself of the pleasure. The Kama Sutra says that it was extremely important that uh, the woman was given an instrument of pleasure, but... It was about her pleasure because we say that every vagina is different. And so it was up to the man to learn how to make something that would suit her pleasure, not just to give her a replica of his own one. And it was interesting because that was one way of introducing variety to their lovemaking because, you know, you um, you had different types of um, uh, instruments that you could use. I mean, part of it, of course, becomes like the courtesan saying, well, if you make me one in gold, it would make me so happy because it would remind me totally of you because you're like my golden boy. But, you know, that was a little bit of give me some gold. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a little bit of both. You know, let's be honest, this is real life. It's not um, a utopian idealistic world. But, yeah, the idea of making the dildos was to introduce variety into a relationship and often they were used together by couples. So it wasn't just that the woman had to go off into a little hidey hole, use it by herself. It was for both of them to use together as mutual pleasure. And sometimes also to take the pressure off the man because, you know, you can't always expect the man to perform at the same um, rate or the same level every single day. There were also slightly different things that they, they could use. And I found that really interesting. So one of the things that it talks about is how they would wrap 
a string of pearls around their penis. And (laughs) yeah, like a cock ring, but it would be sort of like, you know, a little bit more. So that would not only change the size, but also the the feeling of it, the texture of it when it went in and out. And um, yeah, I, I just thought that was such a fabulous idea. But I have to say, each time I say this, lots of lube, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Lots of lube. Uh, very important. Uh, the other one uh, was that I think was really fabulous when it comes to different instruments for sex is the, um, the, the silver balls, you know, the little pleasure balls that they used. Now, here, what they would do is you'd have two little tiny silver balls on a little string or a ribbon. One of them would have a drop of mercury in it. Okay. Sealed into it. And the other one was empty. So when you put it inside and you walked around doing your housework, it, the mercury would heat up and it would start to vibrate. So it would give you that little bit of pleasure as you walked around doing your housework. But what I love is the idea of the second ball. It just tinkled very gently. So it gave you a beautiful sound. So the idea of pleasure really was about beauty. It wasn't about oh yeah, I really feel like I need to knock one up for myself, you know, I need to get one orgasm out or whatever. It was just, just imagine, I mean, actually thinking that far that the second ball would just give you a beautiful little sound and that would pleasure you, uh, your other senses. It must have been good for the pelvic floor as well to do that. Yeah, I guess it's much like the Kegel balls in a way. Mm. Um, and I, I just think that that, w- so actually it's really interesting because that became so popular as an idea that the, um, the British East India Company started to bring back a lot of those when they were in India. And then a black market started in it because the locals in India realized that the British wanted it. So they started to replace the mercury with other liquid. And because mercury was more expensive and difficult to come by. And then there was a law laid against um, selling fake goods with replacement mercury and um, so on. So, I mean, yeah, there was like a whole life that existed around these pleasure balls. Wow. Interesting, you talked about um, oral sex as well. And I think you said you talked about the the Catholic Church outlawed it or something. Yeah, in in, uh, 342 AD. Wow, and I think about oral sex, I think it's... You know, I, I guess maybe it's more a recent phenomenon. I'm not sure if it, if it was done maybe in my, in my grandparents' time, because I'm, I'm from a very Catholic Irish family. And even remember, I remember watching the film Parenthood in the 90s, where it was a big deal when the the wife went down on the on Steve Martin, I think when he was driving. That was like, wow. It was kind of a taboo thing, whereas now it's very normal, but it's been around for a long time. So it's very yeah. interesting about it and how it was okay to go to courtesans. <laughs> That was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, the Kama Sutra has so much to say on oral sex because there's um, a certain amount. So like I said, you know, people think that this is the time when everything was wonderful and utopian in the world of sex. It wasn't. It was The world was very similar to what it is and there was different strands of people, different um, lines of people who believed in different things. The... Chapter on oral sex is, um, it, it sort of bounces around a little bit because he can't quite make up his mind whether he wants to really come out and say, it's fabulous, go ahead, do it, don't think about anything else because there's a lot of other literature from ancient India saying, this is bad, you shouldn't do it. But um, the Catholic, the, the Ecumenical Council of the Catholic Church does ban it and their records show that they banned it in 342 AD anal sex and oral sex both because sex should only be for procreation and this was clearly not about procreation it was just about pleasure so it's banned the um the Kama Sutra then describes eight different ways that a man should perform oral sex on a woman and eight different ways that uh, a woman should so eight different ways of how it should, let me, I'm going to correct myself when I say this, because it should be eight different ways of how it should be performed on a man, how it should be performed on a woman. It doesn't matter who performs it. And its first thing is that if you ask a woman to do it on you, you have to be prepared to do it back for her. Oh, that's Otherwise, it's not fair. 
<laughs> and hence it says, and because there's another text that says you can never ask your wife to do it for you. Otherwise, your ancestors will suffer in, uh, suffer in hell for extra lifetimes. And, you know, so it's quite a sort of, so it says that um, if you feel that it's a sin, then you paid somebody to do it for you. And generally it was like you paid your masseuse or your barber. That's the, the, so yeah, it's not, don't think of masseuse and barber in today's terminology. Back then, these are the people that are gener generically referred to as performing several of these tasks. And it says that with a man, because you, you would pay him to do it. So there's no sin attached to him. And you didn't have to perform it back on them. You could tweak his nipple in, um, in like as a little giving of pleasure for him. So that's as far as you had to go. But what it goes on to say is that you need to learn how to do oral sex properly because if you perform oral sex on somebody, people tend to do it in exactly the same way each time. And you would end up stimulating the same set of nerves each time and the other nerves would never get stimulated. And then there would be this imbalance, which would then lead to an unhealthy situation. So it tells you about the eight different types of kisses that need to be used so that all the nerves get stimulated. Fantastic. Speaking about all the different nerves, it was interesting the, the chapter about moon phases. Actually, this podcast, um, I, I publish every new moon and full moon because <laughs> I'm really ah. into, into moon rituals. So how can the moon, the lunar calendar affect sexuality? So they basically say now um, there's a lot of scholars that don't necessarily agree with this point. I think it's spot on, but they basically say that as the moon moves in its phases, our erogenous zones move around our body because it pulls and pushes the, the liquid inside us, the water inside us. So different parts of your body become more sensitive. Now, it can be your energy points. It can be your erogenous zones. It can be anything that you want to call it, depending on whatever subject you're studying. But the idea was that your energy points do get moved around your body. So each day, it would be worth understanding which part of the body is really, really sensitive, and then stimulating that for a better orgasm. And this happens both for men and for women. So it's not just the women who have their erogenous zones moving around. And um, yeah, I just think that it's a fascinating idea. So the calendar there, the lunar calendar, they say that the original text was a really, really comprehensive text. It doesn't exist anymore. We've lost it. But it says that it kind of categorized men and women by their different um, physical, emotional, and mental characteristics and said how they would feel pleasure in different parts of their body, how those parts should be stimulated. So some might just want it rubbed, somebody else might want it pinched, somebody else might want it pressed for the thumb. So it was a, it was a very comprehensive text, which got lost. And so all we've got is the excerpt that later writers chose to um, to reference or to quote. So it's a little bit more limited, but as I said, a lot of authors say, a lot of scholars say that this is nonsense, that this doesn't actually exist. And I always say that even if you think it doesn't exist, it's a fantastic way to add variety to your lovemaking. Because if you think that on that day, the text is telling you that this is where your erogenous zone is, then you would automatically change how you make up that day. You'd add a different element to it, wouldn't you? Definitely, definitely. And I think it's interesting because recently I, I, I used to live in a penthouse apartment, so I started to be more aware of the moon because I had such a great view of it. <laughs> so I really started following the lunar calendar. And now my menstrual cycle is synced up with the, with the moon. It's like full moon, like the same day period. It's kind of an interesting because I think that could be no coincidence that a menstrual cycle is very similar to to the moons. We are like little planets, different every day. <laughs> That's what I feel like as, as being Absolutely. a woman. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that surprised me in your book is um, the chapter about love bites. When I think about love bites, I think about, you know, adolescent, <laughs> you know, um, set, uh, making making out with someone, you know, when you were a bit younger. And then I don't know why, but we get to control those urges um, a bit more. As, I don't know. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've had a love bite. I think. <laughs> what do you think about um, that? Well, again, I think much like you, we all grew up with very similar 
philosophies. I think that the world is um, run by very similar philosophies on sexuality and um, love, lovemaking. But yes, in the time of the Kama Sutra, love bites were not just something that you jumped on your partner and you did. It was a very special skill and you had to learn how to give love bites in order to be allowed to give love bites. And the rules around love bites were so intense because every bite had its own message. Every bite had its own occasion and every bite had its own shape. So, you know, like today we've got text, uh, text messaging and you can tell your lover how you feel. In those days, they didn't have oh, phones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so in those days, they pretty much used other things um, to send messages or to leave messages. So love scratches and love bites had a huge vocabulary for lovers. And what I love about it is it says that if you had bad teeth, you were not allowed to give love bites to your lover because it would bring dishonor to you because this is a time when it's a courtly society. So your love bites would be displayed. You know, and having a lover who could who could give you the right shape of love bites was you were very fortunate. Like it was a big thing, so you displayed them, mm. and some were hidden and some were to be displayed. And the ultimately skilled love bite was it's known as the bindu or the dot, and it's not the most passionate love bite at all. Actually, I don't think it's a passionate love bite at all because it takes a lot of time and effort to do. But um, it was the most skilled one. And so you were like, wow, he can do this. Um, so it was basically where you nipped the, the skin between two teeth so that you left the, a mark the size of a sesame seed. And after having done that, you then spaced these marks out to create necklace shapes. And I think that it's, it's fantastic because you can imagine a man sitting over there kind of measuring out, okay, now the next one goes over here. Mm you know, now I do this bite and oops, I went wrong. Let me start again. It's not going to allow him to get too aroused. But the woman, because she has that much physical contact and she, it's going to give her time to be more aroused. So I think it was almost like a formula, like an equation to be able to hold the man back and give the woman more space and more time to feel the arousal. But what I love about this is that you could send love bites as a gift. So on flower petals, you could leave love bites and send that. And because each one had its own message and occasion, it would be like a love letter, wow. which everybody could understand because even if you couldn't read or write. Um, so, yeah, I just think I just think that the whole idea, it's uh, personally, I believe that it was based on the structure of Plato's Republic. And Plato wrote the Republic to say that he was creating the perfect society you know, with very militant ideas. I think the Kama Sutra writes this to create the most refined society because it says that how a society treats its woman's pleasure is the marker for how refined it is. How it looks at pleasure is the marker for how, it refi how refined it is. Hopefully we'll get back to that in the future sometime. <laughs> Yes, so a couple of quick, quick questions. Yeah, um, yeah, let's hope so, because it seems like we've kind of taken a step back, you know, in terms of pleasure. Even in this liberal world now, lots of content about sexuality is about how to give a good blowjob. You know, it's still kind of focused on male pleasure. So a couple of quick questions. What's the book that changed your life? Was it, was it really the Kama Sutra or do you have anything else that's, that's changed your so, life? So um, it's the Kama Sutra that started me off when I first, First went into this idea of looking at um, what are the narratives that we'd silenced. I wasn't expecting to find as much as I did. And um, I kind of went to the council thinking, okay, I'm going to write a paper of 15,000 words and I'm going to move on. And it was as I started to explore because so much didn't make sense. And I think it's the day that I discovered as in a footnote in a book, Mali Siegel, um, this thing about the jingling girdle and about the different pieces of jewelry. I think that's the, so actually maybe that's the one I should say changed my life. I think that I'd come across a lot of stuff before that on perfume and I'd got very excited, but I think that's the day that I thought everything else is going to be put aside. Everything else is going to take a backseat. I'm going to focus a lifetime's work on looking at what um, the Kama Sutra talks about, the ideas of pleasure. 
Fantastic. And do you have a phrase or affirmation that you live by? Yes, I always sign my book saying, let there be pleasure. Oh, fantastic. Because pleasure isn't just about sex. It is about so much else. And it starts in the brain. It's, um, it's, it always starts in the mind, doesn't it? It sort of filters so. down to different parts of your body. Yeah, actually, I was watching someone who's a tantra expert, and they were talking about sex is in the body, not in the brain. And I thought, that's the opposite. I think, the, I think everything's in the brain. <laughs> everything is in the brain. Yeah, no, I think that, everything you know, is in the brain. pleasure is, let's say, in an intimate situation, it's about 90% about the energy between the people and then 10% technique. Because, you know, sometimes you can have very conventional sex, but it's, it's like fireworks, you know, because of the emotions involved. Absolutely. I mean, you might feel the sensations in different parts of your body naturally, but yeah, if the brain is not with it, mm-hmm. you're not going to feel the pleasure. Definitely. So where can people find you? So I am on Instagram. I'm on YouTube under the same name. It's um, Seema Anand Storytelling. And um, there is, of course, the book. So, I mean, if you really just want to go off and explore a lot of the literature, I would suggest you read the book just because it gives you an insight into the metaphors and what they were trying to talk about. And um, yeah, the next thing that I'm going to try and do, which I'm working on now very slowly and um, painfully, is on all the lost love festivals from ancient India. Because we had like 30 love festivals as opposed to the one Valentine's Day. And they were all based on the idea of arousing Mother Earth to her pleasure because once your surroundings come to their fullness, it automatically arouses that pleasure within human beings and it impacts us. It sounds very holistic. Like holistic. It is very holistic. It's unbelievably beautiful. And these love festivals included things like um, where women would go out and share a mouthful of wine with the tree trunk because you know, that would give the tree trunk the desire to blossom or the tree the the desire to blossom. And then that would bring about springtime and then that would bring about your your emotions and your passions and so on. So it's just, it's a fascinating um, subject. So yeah, that's the next thing that's hopefully on the horizon. I look forward to reading that. Thank you so much for taking part today in this interview on the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's definitely been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) thank you the book I'm reading now is the 15 invaluable laws of growth by John C. Maxwell and this is a number one New York Times bestseller John Maxwell has been passionate about personal development for over 50 years and he is known as America's number one leadership authority with over 24 million books sold. I'm reading this book because one of the book clubs that I go to, a personal development book club, the organizer of that club recommends this book a lot and she actually uses it with her coaching clients. And this person is actually a wealth and business coach and she's very successful. So I definitely uh, take note of all her book recommendations. And I do love books like this because they kind of help me to kind of think bigger. And among the 15 invaluable laws of growth, there are two laws that really struck a chord with me. For example, one of them is law number six, which is the law of environment. Growth thrives in in conducive surroundings. I definitely think this, but it doesn't doesn't actually speak about the physical surroundings. It talks more about the people you surround yourself with. And there's lots of people who do say that, that you are a kind of the result of the five people you spend most of your time with. And I definitely believe that. I I definitely think it's important to spend time with people that you admire and that you aspire to be like. And it's not really good to be the smartest person in the room. It's always good to kind of have people to look up to and and to learn from. And with this podcast, actually, that's how I feel. I feel like as I feel like I'm really interviewing people who are at least a hundred steps ahead of me in some cases. And I feel like I'm really learning a lot from them. And sometimes when I, just before I have an interview, I get a bit kind of starstruck and nervous, but then afterwards I'm kind of buzzing. I feel like I'm having some kind of personal coaching 
session. It's really, really, really amazing. I feel incredibly privileged to have this influence in my life because in my life, I mean, I do have quite a fun life, an orgasmic lifestyle, of course. That's why that's the name of this uh, podcast. But I do spend a lot of time alone and I do like that. I do like solitude. I think it's important to to be at ease with your own company. But also I do get so much from being with other people. I feel kind of buzzing after I'm around people who I admire a lot. And sometimes I go to co-working, so I'm around lots of like-minded people. And I'm also in some book clubs, a vegan club. So I'm, I'm surrounding myself with people who inspire me. But my guests on this podcast are definitely a few steps ahead. Another law that really struck a chord with me was law number eight, which is the law of pain. Good management of bad experiences leads to great growth. And it says, how do you usually respond to bad experiences? Do you explode in anger? Do you shrink into yourself emotionally? Do you detach yourself from the experience as much as possible? Do you ignore it? And it makes me think about all the great things that I have achieved in my life have actually been, have been, have come from a painful place, really. And if you watch lots of TED Talks, you'll see the same kind of pattern. And oftentimes it's about someone talking about how great their life is now, but it wasn't always that way. And there's some kind of painful event that triggers someone to kind of think bigger or just it's like a response to it in some ways. And I believe that that's happened to me often in my life. And I'd rather kind of grow from ease and grace than actual pain. But sometimes pain kind of forces you to to kind of change things about your life. It gets you out of your comfort zone. You you kind of make changes to kind of get back into a more a more comfortable state. And it makes me think about something that happened to me today actually. Um I was going to my acupuncture session I go every week for this kind of um chronic hip pain sacroiliac joint issues that I've been having for spending far too much time sitting down. And anyway, as I was going now, I had this kind of um, bomb bag or fanny pack, as they call it in the US. And in that bag, I had my keys, my mask, my um, lip balm and my phone. And I had a 20 euro note and it was just kind of loose in there. And then when I get to the place to pay um, to actually get the money out, because I don't have to pay 15 euros because I already have health insurance, I couldn't find that note. And I was thinking, oh my God, it must have fallen out when I took my phone out on the way there. And I was feeling so kind of annoyed with myself. It's only 20 euros, but just the same. I just think I should really be looking after my money a bit more. And I was feeling like so annoyed with myself. I was kicking myself. But then I was thinking, wow, imagine the person who finds that 20 euros and how much joy they're going to get just from finding some money on the floor. I can think of many times in the past when I've just found a note, a 50 euro note or a 20 euro note somewhere and no one's been around. So I haven't felt guilty about picking it up. And it's just been like a real kind of buzzing thing. I remember I was going trekking once with a friend and uh, on my way to meet him, I found a 20 euro note and I kind of saw it as kind of like some lucky omen. And uh, and then I paid for, for our coffees. It was just like feeling lucky, you know. So I'm glad that I my loss of the 20 euros has probably provided that that kind of surprising sensation for someone else. So that's how I'm going to respond from this situation. But also it's kind of taught me not to have, you know, um, notes, you know, being loosened in my in my bag. I must really look after my money a bit better. And, um, and yeah, and that's what I've been learning from this from this incident today. Another great thing about this book is that at the end of every chapter, because there's one chapter for each law of growth, there are some questions that you can ask yourself and you can really see how you can apply these laws to your life and, um, and learn from it and grow because that is the objective of the book, 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. seductress. 
attractive. I am pleasant to be around. I am a nice person. I am capable of attracting a loving partner. I am irresistible. I am lovable. I am desirable. Seduction comes naturally to me. I am a powerful seductress. I am attractive. I see the beauty in others and in myself. I embrace my sexuality. I love and respect myself. I am fun to be around. I am lovable. I am desirable. Seduction comes naturally to me. I am a powerful seductress. I am attractive. I am beautiful inside and out. I am love. I am magnetic. I am happy. I am lovable. I am desirable. Seduction comes naturally to me. I am a powerful seductress. I am attractive. I am ready to receive love. I am ready to receive pleasure. I am developing my powers of seduction. I am interesting. I am lovable. I am desirable. Seduction comes naturally to me. I am a powerful seductress. I am attractive. I am intuitive. find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.